Tena Kotukatoa and hello everybody. Welcome to the Lentil Intervention Podcast. My name is Ben Adelberg and I'm coming to you from Tamaki Makoro, Auckland. And g'day, I'm Emma Strat and I'm currently coming to you from Gungaloo Country in Queensland. And before we dive into the conversation today, I'd just like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. The Lento Intervention is an Australasian educational and advocacy platform dedicated to raising awareness about the current climate and health crisis. And on this podcast, we invite guests to chat about topics that will inspire you to take action to improve your own health and the health of the planet. So please subscribe to and share this podcast and visit our website for the full show notes. And don't forget to buy us a coffee if you'd like to support our work. Season 2, episode 46, and we're back with the Evidence-Based Eating New Zealand series of health-focused public lectures that were delivered around New Zealand. Episodes 18 to 20 were the Dunedin-based lectures, episodes 30 to 32 were Christchurch, and episodes 40 to 42 were Auckland. And now we're bringing to you the Wellington-based series titled The Ministry of Health that was held on the 30th of October. In this episode, we bring you the recording of Dr. Christina Cleghorn's lecture. Here she speaks about food policy changes and how introducing healthy food policies are associated with both environmental and health benefits. Kia ora koutou. Um, thanks very much for having me to speak today. <clears throat> so I would like to speak about um, food policy that can support people shifting towards a healthier and more sustainable diet and introduce you to some of the work that I've been doing looking at the health and environmental co-benefits of some of these policies. Okay, so to start with, what do I mean when I'm talking about environmental benefits? Um, there are so many things to consider when thinking about the environment, well, sorry, environmental impact of food production and therefore food consumption. This list up here is the list of the planetary boundaries. They represent systems that are important for regulating and maintaining the stability of the planet. They define global biophysical limits that humanity should operate within to ensure a stable and resilient Earth system. The ones that I've highlighted here are the ones that are affected by the food system, so the things that we should be thinking about tonight. <clears throat> and greenhouse gas emissions are the focus of the work that I do at the moment, and this isn't to discount the importance of the other um, food-related planetary boundaries, but it's just something that we're using as a starting point to explore the health and environmental co-benefits of food policy. So this work started with the project um, that Martin was talking about. Um, so Jono Drew, the student mentioned, um, assigned greenhouse gas emissions to the 340 different food groups that form the National Nutrition Survey, which happened about 10 years ago. Um, he used New Zealand um, life cycle analyses when they were available. And on this, on this graph, the ones that are marked with the blue stars are the ones that use New Zealand data. Um, and he used UK LCA data when there was no New Zealand data available. So the two things that this graph shows are the greenhouse gas emissions associated with a kilogram of these different food products. And this is just a subsample of the foods in the National Nutrition Survey. And you can see, hopefully, it might actually be a bit too small, but the foods on the right-hand side of the graph 
Um, cheese, pork, butter, processed meat, lamb and beef are the ones that have the greatest greenhouse gas emission impact. The other thing that this graph shows is where these greenhouse gas emissions are generated. And most of this happens at the farming and processing stage, and that is highlighted in that royal blue colour. So this shows us that it's not so much where the food has travelled from or how it's stored or those kinds of things. The really important thing is what the food is. So the next thing that Jono did was, um, as I said, it was applied to the uh, food groups in the National Nutrition Survey. He then calculated um, where those greenhouse gas emissions were coming from when applied to the average New Zealand diet. So you can see from this pie chart that about a quarter of the greenhouse gas, gas emissions from the average diet comes from animal protein, which includes all the meats you'd expect, fish and eggs. And then it goes up to about a third if you add in processed meat. Um, about 25% um, of greenhouse gas emissions in the average New Zealand diet are coming from highly processed foods. Vegetables, fruit and um, plant protein makes up about 15% and there's about 10% from milk, milk products and grains. So we haven't yet talked about what foods are healthy, but in terms of preventing long-term conditions, um, a, a diet that's high in fruit, vegetables and whole grains and low in processed foods, including processed meats, is what you'd consider a healthy diet. So if you combine that information with the information that I've shown you on the last two graphs, hopefully you'll begin to see that there's quite a bit of overlap in the kinds of foods that are both healthy and sustainable. So increasing fruit and vegetable intake and reducing red and processed meat and highly processed foods are likely to have both health and climate co-benefits. So the next bit of work that I wanted to talk to you about was um, some work we did optimizing the New Zealand diet. So we optimized it so it met all the nutrition um, dietary guidelines, uh, it minimized the greenhouse gas emissions, and it made sure that the cost of the diet was the same or below the baseline diet. So again, it might be a little bit difficult for you to see um, this graph, but the blue lines are the optimized foods and the reddish lines are the baseline diet from the National Nutrition Survey. So there's a lot more fruit and vegetables in this optimized diet. Um, there's more dairy products and alternatives, but it should be noted that that is mainly soy yogurt. Um, there is milk, grains, potatoes, um, some fish and some nuts and seeds and a few other food groups up there. But um, what you may also notice is the missing foods. So this graph shows at the top in the cream bars, the foods that haven't actually made it into the optimized diet. Um, and that is where a lot of the, the meat products are sitting and a lot of the processed foods. Okay, so this is what you could think of as maybe an idealized diet. It's unlikely that people are going to, most people are going to switch onto this diet. And it is probably more important to be thinking about what kind of policies could be put in place in order to support people to move towards these healthier, sustainable diets, if that's what they choose to do. So 
The other thing to consider is there's not that much happening at the moment looking at policies to switch towards healthy, sustainable diets. That's quite a new area. But we've been working in the area of nutrition for quite some time. So there's a lot of ideas that we can get from nutrition policy that because there's a lot of overlap between the foods that are both healthy and good for the environment, we can borrow from. So I've just got a list of some, some policies and I've broken them down into some different sections. So to start with um, policies that affect the food environment. So the food environment refers to what foods are made available, accessible, affordable, and desirable in the places people spend time. So it includes things like if there's a supermarket in people's neighborhoods, um, if there's lots of fast food restaurants near their homes, um, and also the price of food. So some of the policies could be subsidies on healthy foods like fruits and vegetables, um, taxes on less healthy, less sustainable foods, um, policies about sustainable healthy foods in institutions like schools and hospitals and prisons, or limiting fast food outlets near schools. There's also policies that encourage behavior change. So this would include things like incorporating sustainability into the dietary guidelines, which has happened in a number of countries around the world. Um, and you may be aware of some labels on foods about how healthy they are. Um, and the same kind of logic can be applied for environmental labels on food. And this is something that's happening um, at least in the pilot stage in Europe at the moment. Uh, we could have media campaigns to encourage um, things like Pipariki Papatuanuku, which is a New Zealand campaign, or Veganuary, which is something that started in the UK. You can have um, advertising limits on less sustainable, less healthy foods. And um, behaviour change policies include those educational programmes like EnviroSchools. And finally, there are policies that can affect the food system. And these are more likely to have environmental benefits and some of them will flow through to having effect on what people are eating. So we could have policies that encourage urban um, community vegetable gardens or um, fruit forests. Policies that support regenerative agriculture, which will have environmental benefits and may or may not flow through to affecting what people eat in New Zealand can have controls on the food that we import into New Zealand and export from New Zealand that can affect what people are eating and policies that support local food production and sale. So a lot of these policies haven't been implemented very many places in the world or they haven't been evaluated if they've been implemented. So it's really hard to know the impact that they're having both on health and on the environment. And you can know that the direction's right, that it is having a positive impact, but it's also quite important to know how much impact. So this is where the kind of work that I do um, can be of use, and that's these modeling methods. So we take um, a policy, a food policy, that changes what people eat, and we use a model that is basically a representation of New Zealand in numbers. So it's populated with the number of people in New Zealand, their gender, ethnicity, age, what they're eating and their disease rates. So the policies that change what people eat will change their dietary risk factors. 
So um, anything that increases fruits, vegetables, nuts and seeds will have a positive impact. Anything reducing red meat, processed meat, sugar sweetened beverages will also have a positive impact. We also do some modeling onto the various um, nutrients like sodium or salt, polyunsaturated fat, fiber and energy intake, um, which is modeled through to BMI. So those dietary risk factors have known associations with disease. So we model 17 diet related diseases, um, including heart disease, stroke, type two diabetes, osteoarthritis, and 13 different types of cancer. So changing what people are eating will change the number of people getting these diet related diseases. And the changes in the number of people getting these diseases will mean that we less people living with the disease and less people dying of the disease. So in terms of the outcomes of the modeling, we get a change in greenhouse gas emissions from that change in food intake using some of the methods that I presented earlier. Um, but the change in health we get, um, so the change in the number of people living with the disease, it's summarized in a composite health measure called a quality adjusted life year. So one quality adjusted life year is one year lived in perfect health. If you live for two years with a disease that reduced your quality of life by half, then this would equate to one quality adjusted life year. So if we had a, a food policy that reduces the number of people getting a disease, there will be less people living with the disease and dying from the disease, which will equal an increase in quality adjusted life years for the population. And we use this measure to compare the impact of food policy um, on health with other policies. And we also use this information to look at the impact on health inequities between Māori and non-Māori, and to look at the costs or cost savings to the health system. But I'm not actually presenting those results today. Okay, so now that you know a little bit about how we model the effect of policies, I just wanted to introduce you to some theoretical shifts in what New Zealanders eat. So these aren't actually policies as such, but they show the benefit that we could get if we magically shifted the whole population to, for example, meeting the dietary guidelines. So that's the first one that, that we've done, and that is from the work that Jono led that we mentioned earlier. So we switched everyone to meeting the dietary guideline, guidelines, and then we've also switched them to being vegan on top of that. We've done some other work um, where we reduce everyone's meat consumption to the Heart Foundation recommendations, um, including eliminating processed meat from the diet. And we replace that with um, legumes, nuts, and seeds. Um, <clears throat> we've got another theoretical shift where everyone follows the uh, global Eat Lancet diet, which was a diet proposed for the world in order to um, reduce the impact of the global food system to keep within all of the planetary boundaries, not just the greenhouse gas emissions. And so you may be able to see from that plate that it is very plant-based. There's a little sliver for animal protein and dairy products in there as well. And then the final theoretical shift we did was shifting everyone onto that New Zealand optimized diet that I presented earlier. And this is a graph of the health gains per thousand people of these theoretical shifts. Um, I'm concerned that it's a bit difficult to read, so I'll just 
make sure I read out all of the ones um, to you. So the very first one is meeting the dietary guidelines, and that is about 250 quality adjusted life years for each thousand people in the population. So you can think of that as an extra three months of life for each individual um, in terms of their life expectancy. But in practice, of course, some people will get no benefit and other people will get more benefit because um, this is just all on averages. The next bar across is meeting the dietary guidelines and um, being vegan, and you get an extra about a month for that intervention. Um, slightly, well, a similar amount for meeting the Heart Foundation um, meat reduction recommendations as the meeting the overall dietary guidelines. And then the largest health gains come from the Eat Lancet diet in that New Zealand optimized diet. That's just a little bit more than meeting the dietary guidelines and being vegan. So on top of that graph, I've now put the greenhouse gas emissions associated with each of these theoretical shifts. So <clears throat> I've presented this as a percentage of baseline emissions, um, which is on the right-hand axis. Um, for the first intervention meeting the dietary guidelines, it's about 95% of the baseline um, greenhouse gas emissions. If you add being vegan into that, it drops down to 65% of the baseline greenhouse gas emissions. It's a bit more for the Heart Foundation intervention, and then it decreases again for the Eat Lancet at, um, I think it's about 55% of baseline emissions, and then 40% for that New Zealand optimised diet. Obviously, meat consumption is a large part of the emissions, but it's, they're not the only foods that have greenhouse gas emissions. So, you know, for example, rice has a big impact. So theoretical shifts are more kind of maybe a bit more for interest and information, but it's also important to be thinking about what are the policies that can be moving us towards these changes. So I've also modelled um, a series of price policies. So we've got um, a 20% decrease in the cost of fruit, fruits and vegetables available for sale in New Zealand. We've got a couple of health motivated taxes, a sugar tax and a saturated fat tax. And then we've got a greenhouse gas tax where all um, foods are taxed, but the amount that they're taxed is weighted um, based on the greenhouse gas emissions per, for example, 100 grams of product. And so this is, the same outcomes. You may notice the first thing that I noticed about this graph is that the um, quality adjusted life years are quite a lot lower than those theoretical shifts as you would expect, because this is an estimate of what would actually happen if these interventions were put in place in New Zealand, um, rather than magically shifting the whole population. So for the, <clears throat> the fruit and vegetable subsidy, it's about a quarter of the health gains of meeting the dietary guidelines. The largest health gain <clears throat> for the health-related um, interventions is a saturated fat tax, and then the sugar tax is somewhere in the middle there. And the greenhouse gas um, tax has almost the same health gain as the saturated fat tax. Adding in the greenhouse gas emissions, 
Again, they're not as extreme as those theoretical shifts. Um, for the fruit and vegetable subsidy and for the sugar tax, there's not really any um, benefit in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. But for the saturated fat tax, I think you're down at about 97% of baseline emissions. And the greenhouse gas tax is down about 93% of baseline emissions. And <clears throat> that greenhouse gas tax is just one way that you can implement a greenhouse gas tax. And it really does depend on the amount that you're taxing it and how you're targeting your tax um, to get those different health gains and greenhouse gas emission gains. So, but I guess the takeaway message from this particular graph is that you can get both health gains and greenhouse gas gains or reductions um, from the, both the saturated fat tax and the greenhouse gas focused tax. So takeaway messages. So there are, of course, many other policies that we need to model. Um, but from our work so far, we can say that New Zealand diets need to move towards more plant-based and less processed foods to be both healthier and more sustainable. And any policies that shift consumption towards meeting dietary guidelines and towards more plant-based foods are likely to result in health and climate co-benefits. And these benefits will vary quite a lot depending on the detail of how the, the policies are implemented, which is why it's important to model these interventions to try and tease those areas out of what's important. And it's also why designing policies, the, de the detail is very important. Increasing the price of unhealthy and high greenhouse gas emitting foods is one mechanism that you can shift consumption towards these diets. And like I said, there's a lot more research to do looking at the potential impact of other policies, but also um, the government can go ahead now and implement policies that support people to move towards more plant-based and less processed foods. We know that there'll be health and environmental benefits to those kinds of changes. And hopefully we've got some time for questions. So um, we, we have time now for um, maybe two or three questions for Christina. I'd like to, to thank Christina for a really interesting talk and she's presented some what I guess if you're sitting in government would be quite a challenging situation given that this information goes sort of against the habits of a lot of lot of New Zealanders and I, I guess when you're in a government you've got to be conscious of what um, the, the populace would, would accept so if, if we'd like to just thank Christina for her talk and then um, Maybe take uh, take a couple of couple of questions. Anyone have a, a, a question? I just I wanted to see all, all of those interventions. What's the outcome? You know, when you had the the taxes um, individually, have you tried all of them? All at once. Imp implementing the four changes. That... <clears throat> uh, we have done combinations of taxes. Yeah, combinations. Like, yeah. yeah, we have done that, and we've done um, combining subsidies um, and taxes together. Some of them are complementary, a sugar tax and a fruit and vegetable subsidy went together really well. Um, what we try and do with some of our modeling is balance out the impact on the cost of food overall. So it's not actually making food more expensive for people because obviously food in New Zealand is already really expensive. 
Yeah. yeah, it could be um, fiscally neutral for the government as well if you tax one and then subsidise with the other with that money. And yeah, and what I didn't talk about was the cost savings to the health system. And these kinds of interventions are saving billions of dollars yeah. to the health system. So they could also put their money that they're saving from the health system. Obviously, there's lots of things they can spend <laughs> that on within the health system, but they can also funnel that into other programmes. I wondered, um, with your modelling, did you base it on traditional methods of agriculture or organic? It's traditional. Um, it's based on, are you talking about the greenhouse gas emission data or the, yeah, it's the, what, it's based on what the majority of people in New Zealand are eating, so traditional. Um, I just wanted to query the um, the greenhouse gas emissions um, per kg um, through all the different food groups, and I saw that milk and dairy was the third most efficient, and that surprised me, um, given we saw what beef was right down the other end. I would have assumed that um, dairy production would have been quite a high producer of greenhouse gas emissions, so I was surprised by that. <clears throat> yeah, we were actually surprised by that as well. So we did a little bit of double-checking around it. Um, and I think part of the reason is that it's milk in its liquid form, and once it's dried down into its powdered form, the greenhouse gas emissions are a lot greater. Um, I also wonder if Mike will be able to <laughs> comment on this. I might have missed this, but I um, did you think about um, the different diets in terms of buying locally? You know, the the importing our pineapples versus not not eating pineapples in your diet. You know that. Yeah, and um, I think that there are lots of policies that could support people buying more locally. Um, in terms of the greenhouse gas emissions, it's really about the kinds of food that you're eating rather than where it comes from. So I don't know if you remember that, that graph where it had the majority of the bars in that blue color. So that's the farming greenhouse gas emissions and the transport actually doesn't make as much difference as you'd expect. But there are a lot of other benefits for um, supporting local producers and I think probably you know other socio-economic and environmental benefits for that. So definitely worthwhile. Thank you for listening to the Lentil Intervention Podcast. If you found this interesting, make sure you subscribe and share it with your friends. 